Have you finished your personal statement yet? Now's the perfect time to get it professionally reviewed by a medical school HQ expert advisor. We have former directors of admissions, admissions officers, and the like on our small team of amazing people. They have the inside knowledge from reading thousands and thousands and thousands, tens, if not 100,000 personal statements going through the process and setting up the process for their whole committee. They know exactly what medical schools look for and the common red flags that can get your entire application thrown out. Take advantage of our flash sale right now, going through May 6th, up to 6,000 characters reviewed for just $150. That's a $75 discount on our regular price. Go to editmyps.com. Again, that's editmyps.com. If you're applying to medical school in 2022 to start medical school in 2023, join me Wednesday or Thursday, Wednesday night at 9.30 p.m. Eastern, or Thursday at 11 a.m. Eastern at premedworkshop.com. Go register today. I'm going to show you how to tell your story in your application. Again, that's premedworkshop.com. If you are applying to medical school in 2022, be there or be square. The Medical School HQ Podcast, session number 115. Hello and welcome to the Medical School Headquarters Podcast, where we believe that collaboration, not competition, is key to your pre-med success. I'm your host, Dr. Ryan Gray, and in this podcast, we share with you stories, encouragement, and information that you need to know to help guide you on your path to becoming a physician. If you're struggling with the MCAT and you just can't figure out the tips and tricks you need to help bring you to that next level, go check out freemcatgift.com and download our 30-plus page report to help you figure it out. This week, I'm bringing back a repeat guest, Dr. Richard Levy from oldpremeds.org. Now, if you remember, or if you haven't listened, he was back when we first started, back in session five, which you can listen to at medicalschoolhq.net slash five. So Richard is the kind of go-to guy for non-traditional students, which a large majority of you listening right now are non-traditional students. And I wanted to bring Rich back on to talk about what's going on in the non-traditional world and just kind of healthcare in general. And you'll listen to our talk about what's going on in the medical education realm. And you'll hear us just have a conversation, which is fun. And you'll also hear him talk about the old pre-meds conference, which is coming up in June in Los Angeles. So listen to that for more details. If you want to go and find those details now, go to oldpremeds.org slash conference, and you can find out everything that you need to know there. So let's uh, start talking to Rich. Rich, welcome back to the Medical School Headquarters podcast. How have you been in the last 100 episodes or so? Busy and impressed to see that you're doing so well at your podcast. Well, I think it was that fifth episode that you were on that really turned it around for us. Uh, Well, I had a little bit to do with just getting you going, but you've done quite well without me. Don't worry. Why don't you remind people if they have forgotten 100 episodes later for somebody that hasn't gone back and listened to Session 5, who you are and and what you do in the pre-med community? My name is Richard Levy. 
and I'm the executive director of the National Society for Non-Traditional Pre-Medical and Medical Students. We're better known by our website name, oldpremeds.org. Now, old pre-meds, I, I know we, we are becoming a very PC society. Is it still PC to say old pre-meds? I'm not so sure if it's necessarily PC or not, but I'm not sure it's accurate anymore. I think it was best described to me by a director of admissions at the Hofstra Medical School that non-traditional is the new traditional medical student. Yeah, I like that. Um, it was, uh, it's been interesting to see that when this organization started, or as I say, the founders considered going to medical school, say in the mid-90s, that having anyone who was out of college for a few years, particularly older, thinking of going to medical school was unusual. And now it's commonplace. There's no way to describe it. Why do you think that is? I think society as a whole has sort of changed and evolved. I mean, it was only a couple of generations ago, not even, where there was a hard limit on age for medical school. The accepted number was if you were 26 years or older, you were not going to be accepted, period. And that started to break down along with gender barriers, age barriers. And the last couple of generations, as I said, they've been more accepted. We don't have people who go right from high school to college to medical school. People take a year off. A simple, I think, is almost common. People break up their time in college. People have more expensive to go to college, may take longer. People decide to go change careers. And I think the best example, perhaps, is looking at post-baccalaureate pre-medical programs. Two decades ago, perhaps there were a dozen or so in the country. Now I think there are close to 150 formal programs for post-baccalaureate. Now, we'll get into postbacs and what they're for and who they're for, but I'm still interested in this change in the makeup of matriculating medical students. Do you know from the AAMC data what the average age of, of first-year students is nowadays? The average age, I believe, is approaching 24 years old. When I last look at the data, and I haven't looked at the data in a couple of years per se, is it used to be... 22 was a hard number, 22.1, 22.2. Now you're seeing that a good 5% of the applicants as well as matriculants are 30 years of age or older. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think it is, it's 24 years of age now. And, and if you actually, for the math wizards out there listening, if you do the math for the number of people that are applying and matriculating to school, to budge that average from 22 to 24, that's a lot of older people that are now going into medical school. Well, there's a couple of things that have gone on with the demographics that make that possible. One is the expansion of the number of medical students. So until about 2005, I believe, there had not been a new MD school open in the United States except for one in 20 years before. And since 2005, I think we've had close to 20 new MD schools or MD programs open up. You've also had the DOs expand tremendously in terms of the number of schools as well as the number of seats. So instead of having, say, under 20,000 people a year going to either MD or DO school, you have close to 24 or 25,000 people a year now starting to go to medical school. 
demographics really changed about 2000. They started a, a trend. 2000 was the lowest number of students we had applying to medical school, and then the numbers just started going off the charts. There's a big push from the American Medical Association for new GME spots and new spots in medical school. So I'm, I'm assuming that's what's driving a lot of that with this. Their research saying that we're going to be 130,000 physicians short in 15 or 20 years. And so that's a big driving force for all these schools opening up. And whether that's good or bad, that a lot of that worries me. I don't know if you've looked into that or thought about that. Well, it's interesting that the number of students and the AMA pushing for those number of schools and the number of seats opening up, as well as the Osteopathic Association. But what's troubling about it, we are producing more homegrown medical students, if you will, but we haven't increased the number of residency slots nearly as much as the number of seats in medical school. So while we do want to get more physicians, I'm not sure the current prognosis is all that good. I think all we've done is in many ways switch from having U.S. offshore doctors filling a lot of slots to U.S. graduates filling the same number of slots. It's not necessarily producing a lot more physicians. Yeah, and I, my biggest concern, I have lots of friends who are lawyers, and my biggest concern is that we're going to end up like law school has the last couple of years, where a graduating law student doesn't have a job. And medicine is different in that you need to do at least an internship in most states to even practice medicine. Once you graduate medical school, you can't even practice medicine unless you do that extra year. And so if we don't have these spots, then we're in a lot of trouble. And it's already starting to hit. I think two years ago was the first time that 528 U.S.-based MD graduates, seniors who graduated medical school that year, were not able to find a residency slot at all. Yeah. And that was the first year that's happened. And it's, that's really where many students who apply to medical school don't look past that application process to see what goes on four years later. And the difficulty, competitive, competitive nature of residencies are going to outweigh the competitive nature of getting to medical school. Yeah, I, I saw that information, and I'm a very skeptical person, <laughs> and I wanted to see more information. Who were these 500 students that didn't get a spot? What residency were they applying for? Where were they applying? How many residencies did they apply for? So I... My intuition says that these are people that probably were applying for residencies that were above and beyond what their qualifications would allow them to get. And they kind of put their foot down and said, no, I want to be a dermatologist. I don't care that I am the bottom 5% on my board scores. That has a lot of validity. Part of the problem with doing residency data, since students can apply to multiple programs at the same time, getting clear-cut answers from the data on what this presents really makes it difficult. So you can imagine just said these students who decide I only want to be a dermatologist and not applying to any other program, were they really qualified, were they at the competitive level necessary to be successful in dermatology, orthopedic surgery, or any one of the other really competitive residencies? Were they deciding not to apply to residency and just do something else for the year and then try to apply again the year after? 
um, we're having, we've had students in our own program who say wanted to get in something as emergency medicine, which is becoming more competitive than had been, had to spend a year doing the transitional year or the traditional intern year as a filler until they got into a program. Mm -hmm. The other thing that's going to make it more complex is now that we've started to combine the osteopathic and the MD, allopathic MD residency programs into one unified picture, how is that going to change where people apply to? So is it going, in the end, practicing physicians are all wind up having similar training, but how is that going to change this flow of who goes into what profession and why? More to come with that. <laughs> I'm sure we'll, we'll have the same conversation on the 500th episode of the podcast, <laughs> I'm sure. Oh, Lord, I don't want to think that far ahead. So, Rich, you run Old Pre-Meds, the, the form, the community at Old Pre-Meds, and I go and hang out there, and I attribute Old Pre-Meds to kind of the, my early beginnings, the support that I received there, and the community there that supported this podcast and everything that I was doing. And I still frequent the website, and I was reading a post recently from somebody that said that... This is their first post, and they're intimidated and already am discouraged. They've spoke with people, and, and these people have already burst their bubble and told me it's an insane dream. I think they put that they were like 35, and they're being told it's an insane dream and, and that they should just admit to their misfortune and, and live, live their life as it was. What do you say to somebody like that that's coming in all woe is me? How do you perk these people up? Well, once I tell everyone to start with the same place, rule one is to take a breath. It is a long and difficult process. And two, for this particular example you just said, I said you didn't start med school till 35. The past chair of the board of trustees of the AMA didn't start medical school until she was 35. So if she can be the top person in medicine in the country in terms of leadership, then perhaps you can be successful too. But first you have to start every journey of a thousand miles with a single step. And most people just get bound of information. It seems so overwhelming. Everyone tells them it's too hard, you can't do it, etc. They have to take their breath and figure out where to start, what information do I have, what is this process? I think most students don't initially see how difficult or how complex, I should say, the process is, and they get overwhelmed before they even see it or understand it. I totally agree with that because the path is so convoluted and there's so many variables that what can a non-traditional student, what can this person, guy or girl, 35 years old, how do they go find an advisor at their old undergrad or maybe their new undergrad where they're trying to go back and take classes? How do they work with an advisor as a non-traditional student? There's several ways they can do that. One is if they're currently in a program, is seek out the advisor. Most advising programs still are structured around a full-time younger undergraduate. You're getting more advisors who are open and understanding on how to do, deal with a non-traditional student, someone who's not going to school full-time. If they've had a previous degree, many schools offer their alumni, as part of their alumni services, the offer of not only their advisor, but their pre-medical committee, which is a whole different ballgame as well. Another fact they need to know. You also have several organizations. Perhaps the most prominent would be the AMC, the American Association of Medical Colleges, 
which runs the application service for medical colleges. And they have a tremendous amount of information on their website, as well as publishing a book, which I consider a must read for every pre-medical student. And that is the Medical School Admissions Requirements, the MSAR. And in fairness, I also point out that the Osteopathic Association, the AACOM, has a similar book, the College Information Book, CIB, which is a free download. Those two booklets in themselves will give you a good outline of what the process is, where to go, how to start. And from there, you can also find the organization, for example, the National Association of Academic Health Advisors of Health Professions, NAHP, which has volunteer advisors on their site you can get some information due, as well as the websites. Our website, Old Premeds, is a place to start. Student Doctor Network, SDN, has a very large non-traditional. No, we don't talk about SDN. We should talk about it. <laughs> SDN gets a bad rap, and I actually think they get most of the rap is not due to the people who run SDN. Oh, not at all. Dedicated. But it's really due to the vitriol that goes on amongst the undergraduates, most of whom have no experience in actually doing pre-medical stuff and no professionalism and decorum in advising. Kind of interesting that today on the National Health Advisors listserv was a whole series of letters about professionalism. And it would be interesting, those two sort of disparate points, the student doctor network filled with people who aren't professional, the students who were put post there, Yet professionalism is one of the key things to being a doctor. I think that would be amazing that if one day you're getting handed your medical school diploma and they're able to tie you to your online, whether it's Student Doctor Network or wherever else it is, your anonymous username, and they go, you know what, you were not professional back in the day or even to this day, we're not going to give you your diploma. I could actually take that sort of humor and make it a real story. I've often told students, particularly at SDN, about their online personas and people it can lead to trouble. This has been brought out in several various academic studies, usually with residency and actual positions in medicine, because medicine by its nature is kind of a conservative, professional I dislike to use the word image, but we do have the idea of what a doctor should be to a patient. And there is a certain wall that needs to be there. And people want to be able to respect the doctor. There have been people who, you know, something I put on Facebook 10 years before as a drunken undergraduate shows up when their third year resident has patients screaming about, I just saw this picture of this guy. Now, what particular on this one is I often get involved with some of the medical school admissions people who don't want to get involved in some of the online brawls that go on, so to speak. So I often will post information on their behalf or talk about it. And I've seen comments. I've actually had a medical admissions person talk to me directly with an email about comments from a student on a forum about an interview they went to. This medical admissions person could easily identify who this student was from the comments they made. I then sent a private message to the student who said, you can't figure out who I am, et cetera, et cetera. And I was able to say, you told me in this post, you're so-and-so, you did this, you did that. Said so these three or four pieces of information, you're this person from this city. And I can tell you now that your comments about the med school are, to say the least, unprofessional, if not going to keep you from getting accepted. 
And it was absolutely true. I was told directly by this admissions person. They talked about us like this. And why should we why should we accept their commitment, professionalism, motivation to be a doctor when it seems to be completely undermined by their own postings? Wow. It will hurt. Yeah. Students don't believe me when I say that. And I bring and I give them links to studies. I give them links to real data and they still don't put it up. It's just amazing to me. Well, I think what started kind of this tangent into professionalism, there was a ruling recently with Case Western University and the courts backed Case Western, the the medical school, from denying a student that has completed medical school. They're denying him his diploma because they found out, I think that he had a DUI earlier in his life that he'd never reported. And so that's a little bit of a sketchier thing. But their determination was because of this past, he did not have the professionalism of being a physician. And the courts upheld the school and said, you know what, you are the ones that can make that decision, go right ahead and withhold his diploma. So it's something for everybody, non-traditional, traditional, everybody to be on the lookout for. It's one of the things during the medical school application process and students ask me, I once had some incredibly minor disciplinary infraction from college. Report it. When you write an application, it is essentially a contract that you are signing that you've reported everything. And every, anything that you possibly leave out can be used against you. And here's the perfect example. Yeah. And uh, by the way, this goes through, not as we see in this case, all the way through graduation or not graduation. I've had students who've been accepted and then during their pre-matriculation review of something was not correct and their acceptances have been pulled. Wow. That's a bummer. <laughs> so until you're actually a doctor with that degree in your hand and your license and a practice and a residency, you better keep a straight lifestyle in many ways. Even after that, your license is always on the line. That small little document holds so much power. And even if it's not, say, the word legally, but think about, are you going to want a doctor? Are you, as a doctor in a practice or a hospital, and most practices now, practicing physicians, are not opening their own office and hanging out their own shingle, but rather employed someplace else? Are they going to employ someone who may have anything against him, anything at all that he or she has done in the past that could be used against their company, and they're going to be hesitant to hire you? Yeah. Oh, that's... I had a a recent discussion with the chief of my medical services, and he said that the civilian hospitals, they have so many applications that they're weeding out the ones that have some sort of red flag automatically. If you had some sort of adverse action on your credentials or some sort of DUI or whatever it may be, you're automatically thrown out because there are so many other applications there that don't have any issues. By the way, this leads to another point that I like to tell the students is that being a physician and being into medical school and becoming one is in many ways being a journeyman. You you are maybe, depending on your specialty, maybe looking at jobs and positions, whether med school, clinical, residency, fellowship, final practices, etc. It is a lifestyle that people have to be aware of before they start because you could have a case like this where you've gone into, say, you got into some high-level specialty, you're really happy, but then you realize the higher level the specialty is, per se, the fewer positions there are and the harder it is to change. 
For example, the founder of Old Premeds, who's a critical care anesthesiologist specialist, I think his number of moves from his time for doing pre-medical work through finally having a permanent position, I think he's done 18 interstate moves in 25 years. Wow. And now his position that he had, he comes from a, a relatively small city in the South, if there's only two practices that really have his specialty, and until somebody retires or dies, he can't get a position there. His family's moved back there. His wife's parents, his parents are there. Every two weeks, he takes three plane rides to get back home. Wow. So it's a lifestyle that people don't realize the implications that come up. Yeah. So you talked about journeyman, and I want to bring up a couple other posts on old pre-meds that I've seen recently. And these are posts from people that say, hey, old pre-meds, it's been several years since I was posting here, and basically, I've fallen off the wagon. I was starting to get everything ready to go to reapply to medical school or to apply to medical school. I started taking classes, and life got in the way. And now here I am five years later and restarting the journey. Why does life get in the way for non-traditional students? Unlike traditional undergraduate who may be you know, 20 years old or so, doesn't have uh, children that necessarily doesn't have a significant other, doesn't have a family support, doesn't have a mortgage to pay. If you go five years into someone's life, they may be married, they may have kids, they may have a, a good job. They're paying their college loans back. They may have bought a house. And life happens whether you go to med school or not. We've had people in the old pre-meds who may not happen to a traditional undergraduate. Their father passes away. Their children get sick. The housing market collapses. Most regular traditional undergraduates don't have necessarily the level of impact from those events where an older student would. Life will go on, whether you're in med school or not. It is hard. It, it, the, the law of an object in motion will stay in motion. I think it's the easiest path is just to continue working your job that you're not really happy at instead of trying to figure out a way to leave it and go be a student full-time again so you can apply. And so that's a, a hard situation, but people are doing it every day. And it's fun to see those that succeed and get that acceptance letter. Well, there's a reality that many students, two things about the, and we'll talk about the reality, but I'll talk about it in terms of money, is one, it costs a lot of money. You, you have a life. You want to go to a school. You may have to pay out of your own pocket. You could be talking... $10,000, $20,000, dollars or more to go to a pre-medical program of some kind. And that's a lot of actual money out of your pocket. But for the investment you're going on to medical school, which may be $200,000, $300,000 in debt, it tends to be a drop in the bucket. People can't necessarily see that or necessarily have the money to do that. The other side to that, for a, a traditional graduate who uh, goes to medical school, they're not sort of giving anything up they've had. If you're in a full-time profession and career before going to medical school, you have to prepare. You have to go to med school for four years, which means no income, no retirement savings, no mortgage payments. You then go to residency for a minimum of three years, which has something in the neighborhood of below minimum wage payments and hours. 
Again, no retirement. It's a significant amount of money above and beyond the actual debt for medical school itself. For some people, it could be half a million dollars worth of investment to do it. Yeah, easy. Speaking of investment, <laughs> there's one of the, and you mentioned it earlier with postbacks. there's this post-back program out there. And they cater to, pretty much, they, they cater to non-traditional students. And I worry, I, I get a lot of emails from students that talk about their grades of, I have this GPA and this MCAT, and I'm going to apply to a post program. And then I turn around and go, why are you applying to a post program? Your grades, your MCAT are, are strong. Why are you doing that? What are your thoughts about non-traditionals and their necessity to go to a post well, I'll go back a step and I'll say all students, non-traditional and traditional. And I started hearing traditional students who have just finished college with good grades still consider doing a post-bac because they think it's going to somehow improve their chances, boggles the mind. I sometimes think if I ever wrote a book about pre-medical advising or about the students, I would call it the neurotics. People worry about everything to the point that every detail in their record they get completely obsessive compulsive about without looking at their entire picture of what their life looks like as one image. Almost like they fixate on a pixel of their life, like, oh my, I only have a 3.66, why well, I really need a 3.7. If I just spend you know, another year going to school, I could push it up that half a grade. What else do you have going on? I think they're just so paranoid about the competitive nature. And they get that from SDN, by the way. I was about to say (laughs) that there is an amplification, and a a large part due to SDN, but other sites as well, that the the difficult task of applying and being successful in medical school sometimes comes off as mythically impossible due to a lot of posts that go on in various places on the internet, SDN not just being the only one by any means. It seems that... It's interesting how that's driven some of the other demography that's going on with this. And I'll give you an example. Ten years ago, medical schools were a difficult level. Osteopathic schools were a couple of notches below that. Say an average medical applicant for medical school had a 3.6, 3.7 GPA. An osteopathic student may have a 3.3, 3.4 GPA. Well, because there's so many people through the internet, SDN, Old Permits, other sites that talk about how difficult it's getting medical school, it's forced a lot of good candidates with less than, say, a 3.7 who might have applied to medical school a couple years ago, consider osteopathic school instead. That, in turn, has driven the competitiveness nature in osteopathic schools that it's just a little bit below um, MD school in terms of GPA and MCAT score. In fact, Right now, the on an applicant-to-seat ratio, it is more competitive to get to DO school than it is to get into MD school. Yep. Um, and I think a lot of good candidates are turned off because they just don't think, well, I haven't reached this absolute height and just I'm a little bit below it and I shouldn't even try. And that's ridiculous. That sort of goes back to where we started this conversation. What do you tell someone who's 35 and thinking about starting? I'm, everyone's telling me no. And I go... Start. Figure out where to start with. Start at one place. Yep. Um, Ep- big- episode oh. one of the Medical School Headquarters podcast is a great place to start. 
<laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> you you know what's a, another a great place to start is, and I, I think it's a good transition, is a place that I went to a couple years ago to speak, and that's it's the old pre-meds conference. Now, we're recording this in January, and I'm sure you're ramping up for this year's old pre-meds conference. Do you want to talk about that for a little bit? Sure. Uh, this year, we're going to have our 15th annual conference. Uh, we're having on the West Coast in Los Angeles. We have, it depends on, on our theme for that year, what we did. This year, we're doing an application, uh, somewhat of an application workshop. The speakers include Rebecca Patchen, who is the former chair of the AMA, uh, Dr. Ken Geller, who is the head of USC uh, pre-med advising, was a medical school professor at USC for 40 years or something like that. Um, several other speakers to discuss the steps, and particularly aimed at older students, where to start, how to approach the application. What I think it having the workshop and having the conference does for many students is two things. One, it puts a real face on this. You're not just one of these numbers in the crowd. You're not just on an internet. You actually can see and hear from people and have some motivation to actually think that it is possible. And the second, you meet people who are in many ways going to be your support network. Um, many of the people, people who founded old pre-meds, and every year I get a group of people who found themselves at the conference and they become their support group as applying to medical school and within, within medical school as it goes, life goes on. Yeah, I think one of the the biggest things when I went a couple of years ago was sitting in a panel discussion with admissions committee members from various medical schools that you had invited. And the non-traditional students were asking these questions about, about how they would be viewed on an application. And I, I think the majority of the audience was relieved. You could you could feel a lot of the tension and, and stress and anxiety go out of the room as these admissions committee members talked because they were getting information directly from the horse's mouth and not from an anonymous person posting on a website that is telling them there's no chance that they're going to get into med school. So I think that's one of the biggest reasons to try to get to one of the to to the old pre-meds conferences is you you hear from people that actually control your destiny and they tell you that yes it's possible and by the way i didn't mention before the old pre-meds conference will be june 11th through 13th at the los angeles international airport we have a, a hotel there uh, we make a fairly it's very inexpensive to go we charge under a hundred dollars to register for the conference I try to make sure that we have rooms in the hotels that are under $100 a night. We create a sharing forum. So if you want to share a room, I try to make it as inexpensive as possible. The speakers who come to us do it out of their own time and money. We have never paid for a speaker. We ask them, could you come and give us an hour? And students seem to be shocked, under, uh, traditional students as well as non-trads, that you get people like the admissions director from one year we had in D.C., I think the year you came. We had John Hopkins, Georgetown, George Washington, and a few other of the medical schools send admissions directors there who were more than happy to answer questions. It's always amazing. Students seem that they shouldn't ask a question. Ask them. These admissions people would love to tell you what they expect, what they want to see. Um, and it's also good to get yourself a little bit known that you, when they come in discussion at an admissions committee, not necessarily that you're um, 
application is going to be helped immensely. But somebody's met you, somebody's spoken to you. When you're sitting around with admissions committee, sitting around with piles of applications, and somebody can speak up, oh yeah, I, that student called me a couple times and I met them once in an interview. They seem really motivated about doing it. That could be a decision whether you get in or not. So it's really worthwhile to get in on sort of the ground floor and ask before you start the process. A lot of medical schools may be too busy to do it, but many will. They'll write them an email. They'll, you'll get surprised how many people answer back with some information about what they expect from students. Yeah, that 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 lately has been my go-to advice to students is get on the phone with an admissions committee member, the office there, and, and ask them. Tell them your situation, and, and more often than not, they'll be glad to, to help you along. I also, at the same conference when we had, uh, we specifically dealt with the admissions process. It was interesting to hear director of admissions from GWU, which, by the way, has the most medical school applications of any school in the country. I think they get 12,000 applications a year for 120 spots. Um, they're telling about interviews and just what people don't do to plan for interviews. Someone talking about, we had someone from Michigan Osteopathic School talking about letters of recommendation. It was nice to hear someone say, yeah, we read them. We really look into what they say. Not just, because some people say, does anyone really read this? Mm -hmm. um, people are, it's nice, as you just said, to hear what really goes on and get an idea. Yeah. Who's the, the ideal person that should come to the old pre-meds conference? Is it, is it, you talked a little bit about it. Is it only for non-traditional students or should it be for any pre-med? I think any pre-med would, would get benefit out of it while we in many ways sort of focus on the issues that may be more specific to a non-traditional. But I've had students in their, you know, still in, still an undergraduate. I've had 21-year-olds come to the conference uh, just because they feel overwhelmed at a large school, not getting all the information, feeling just sort of, you know, lost in the crowd, so to speak. Um, I've had uh, parents come to the conference looking for their own for their own children, which is kind of an interesting event. Uh, but I think anyone can benefit from it, though. For many regular undergraduates, you can probably get information where you are as well. It really depends what you need in terms of a support network. P perhaps the best way to look at it is anyone who's not really integrated into their school as a regular full-time student who's not part of both the formal support network, that is the advising, as well as the informal network of living in the dorm, being with students. I mean, there are many 20-year-olds who only go to school part-time and work a lot of hours and really can't be part of that whole information setup where a lot of information is sort of, we'll call it for lack of a better thing, uh, osmosis between students. I like that. I, I don't know if I've ever thought about it that way, but that's a, a good way to look at it. When I first started doing this some years ago, one of my first presentations to the Osteopathic Association was the fact that many non-traditionals don't have that informal support network and don't know what to do. Per your example, someone on our site asking, I don't know where to start. I'm so discouraged. They're not part of any network, formal or informal, to really find out information. Yeah. All right. Where can people find out more information and register for the conference? You simply can go to oldpremeds.org. There should be a link or oldpremeds.org slash conference to be specific. We have a, a flyer there that tells you who's speaking, what the events go on, what our uh, dates are, as well as registrations right there, including a link to hotel for inexpensive reservations. All right. Rich, any 
parting words of wisdom for that non-traditional out there that that's posting on your site and saying, help me, help me? I say, first of all, you're not alone. Take a breath and let's help you get started with one step at a time to see if this fits for you. I don't think everybody necessarily non-traditionals are going to go to medical school, but I think everyone is entitled to find out the real information in order to make a decision for themselves to try this or not. All right. That was Rich Levy again from oldpremeds.org. Go check out their website. Go check out the forms. Say hello. Register. Don't just lurk in the dark corners of the forms on Old Premeds. Great community there. Nothing like that other three-letter form website that he, uh, unfortunately, that Rich kept talking about. We try not to bring them up, but that's okay. It happens. So oldpremeds.org, oldpremeds.org slash conference for more information about the conference in Los Angeles coming up in June of this year, June 11th through 13th. So thank you, Rich, for joining us. If you have any questions for Rich, you can obviously go ask him on oldpremeds.org or you can leave us a note, a comment on our website, medicalschoolhq.net slash 115 for all the information about today's podcast. Links to the Old Pre-Meds website, the conference website, you can find there as well. So continue the conversation at Old Pre-Meds and medicalschoolhq.net. We had two wonderful reviews come in this week for the Medical School HQ podcast. And if you haven't done so yet, it really only takes a minute or two. And we greatly appreciate every review because it means so much to us in iTunes, where unfortunately or fortunately, the majority of podcast listeners come from. I know there are plenty of you out there that have an Android device. And if you only listen on our website, go subscribe. There, You can listen on Double Twist. You can listen on Stitcher on Android. You can listen to a couple different things. But for iTunes, even if you listen on Android, go to iTunes and leave us a rating interview. You can go to medicalschoolhq.net slash iTunes to do that. So this week we had a review from JWR65 that says the best podcast on pre-med to physician. Great free resource that is reliable and informative. Thank you, JWR65. We also had one from Mike Hamilton who says, amazing, currently training at a community college to become a medical laboratory technician. I plan to finish out my degree in biochem, and this is helping make the decision to go on to medical school after. So awesome, Mike. Good luck on your journey. Obviously, you know where to hang out and to stay to get that great information that you need to know and encouragement and guidance and everything else. So Thank you. MedicalSchoolHQ.net slash iTunes. Leave us a rating and review if you have not done so. If you aren't part of our Hangout on Facebook, go to MedicalSchoolHQ.net slash group and you can join the 140 plus members I think we have now that are there helping each other and collaborating. This past weekend, I asked what everybody was working on. And we had an awesome conversation with a bunch of people chiming in what they're studying, what kind of tools and resources they're using to help study. So great community there, medicalschoolhq.net slash group. All right. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I hope you got a lot of great information out of it, some encouragement. And as always, I hope you join us next time here at the Medical School Headquarters.